Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody, to The Family Biz Show. I'm your host, Michael Columbus. I'm with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. I just want to welcome you to today's episode. Um, we are fortunate to have a really special guest, in my opinion. Um, George Isaac is with us today. Um, George and I met 12, 13 years ago now, um, 2013 in London, England speaking at, uh, I believe it was the Family Office Leadership Summit. Was that, that was it, that was it. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, that was probably one of my first times and I was shaking in my boots at giving that talk. And George was polite and, and empowering and just kind of guided me through to make sure that I didn't uh, make a fool of myself. And uh, I'm very thankful for that. And we get to reconnect. Here we are, you know, I, um, you know, putting the show together. And uh, um, George shared an article with me that he had written. And I'm like, no, no, no we need to talk about that. I want to put that on the show so that people can understand, you know, what are the 10 critical initiatives for family business longevity. And uh, it was a really great way um, to introduce these topics. I think an awful lot of times when we're dealing with family-owned business owners, the um, it, taking the time to read a 350-page, you know, book um, the owner of the business is like, ah, I don't have the time for this right now. I, I'm an A-type personality. I need something simple and easy. Put it in front of me. It's a couple of pages and I can get the gist of it. And then I, I'll figure out what to do with it. I think this is a great article that does exactly that, George. So welcome. How are you? Great. You know, what I did share you at the time in London was that I was equally nervous, but I thought that would be the wrong thing to communicate. <laughs> I think we both came off okay based upon review. I appreciate it. No, it's was, great to be a uh, part of your show and um, nothing better than talking about family business stuff. So um, you know, whatever you want to talk about, we're, you know, we'd love, love to join the conversation. Perfect. So what I want to do, let's, you know, to kind of kick off is if you don't mind introducing yourself a little bit in terms of, you know, I always like to figure, find how did you end up becoming a family business consultant? What is, what was your path? What was your journey to get here? Because we all, it seems that there's, there's always a, um, a rhyme or a rhythm to, you know, a pattern to how we end up in these areas, but they're all different. So I'm just curious, tell us how you got here. Okay. Well, I'll give you the honest to God's truth. I grew up on the same block as our family business in a small town in Northwestern Ohio. And so I used to walk down as a, you know, 10 year old, 12 year old to hang out at the office with my dad and aunts and uncles. So I was kind of programmed to be a business guy and kind of programmed to go into the family business. When I graduated from college and grad school, my family, and I had cousins back in the business. My, my father said, you know, you're gonna come back and join the business. And I said, no. <laughs> and so, so I wanna get some outside experience first. And for other reasons as well, I thought I needed to develop myself and so, I really didn't plan on going into the family business. Went to uh, join Touche Ross at the time, it's now Deloitte. Became a partner in our management consulting practice. Then my father decided, who was president, that he wanted to retire. He said he was ready to kind of semi-retire. Of course, the first question is, anybody that's in the, in the next generation, what does that mean, semi-retire? That's not the kind of music you want to hear from the prior generation, particularly one that was authoritarian in style. So we hired an outside president, so we kind of went through that whole experience, and that didn't really work out as well, as you might imagine, for his style was different and so on. So they came back again about a year and a half later and said, can you come back and run the business? And at that point in time, I thought, yeah, I probably should, because we didn't have a lot of alternatives. And as I 
mentioned and we'll mention later, if you don't have a succession plan in place, you know, unfortunately the best alternative is often just to have to sell the business, which is a terrible position to be in. And so we were in that kind of position, didn't have people back in the business that could run it. We hired an outsider and that didn't work. So I was kind of the last choice, um, you know, to keep it going. And so we did and, and it went real well. We grew it significantly and so on. So then I, we have two businesses and one I sold the main operating company to a public company. I got involved with the public company. We did an industry consolidation. Then thereafter, I started serving on a bunch of boards and PE investing and, and some consulting. Finally, when we moved out here to Santa Barbara, I wanted to continue consulting because I, I started to retire and that didn't work well for me. And so I thought I would continue being this broad general management consultant and realized nobody knew me. Nobody really cared whether you think you can do a bunch of stuff or not. But I do know a lot about family businesses, so I decided to specialize. So I, that's, that's basically, it's kind of like the fourth career. And it's perfect because it's something that I've lived my whole life with. I've learned a lot from other areas of experiences that I can bring to the family business community that a lot of people don't get exposed to. It gives me a chance to work, you know, teaching and consulting and writing and so on. So it's just kind of my last phase. Nice. And when did you start the consulting piece? How, how many years well, ago? I, I mean, I've been on 15 different boards, two public company and, and 13, I guess, private company. And most of those were family businesses. So Got it. I've, been, I've been consulting all along since um, we, we sold the main operating company. I, I left the family business, so to speak, as from a CEO perspective to stay on the board for our real estate businesses. Once we sold the operating company, I was looking forward to the public company experience and other experiences. So I, but I was, I've been consulting since 1999 in the family business and private business area. And of course, my, from 77 to 88, I was a professional Deloitte consultant and left there as a partner. So I've been for a long time. Perfect. So in your article, in this, in, for those that don't know, Tharawat Magazine is probably one of the, you know, them and Family Business Magazine, the two biggest family business, you know, publications out there. Um, Therawatt um, across, you know, worldwide and family business magazines, more U.S. based, but they do, you know, some other, some other pieces as well. Um, so that's, a, it's a great publication. And, you know, this, this is not, uh, you know, a simple article. This isn't a, a one page 500, you know, you know, 500 word blog post or something. This is, there's some meat inside of here. And you, you kick off the article just talking about to sell or not to sell. And those are almost like, you know, those are swear words in the family business, isn't it? You know, when you, when you talk about it, how many times do people even entertain the idea of selling? It's for the current generation. Isn't that, you know, taboo to be talking like that? And that's how you start the article off. Well, there's... Yeah, you're right, and it's 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 taboo to, to some, but the fact of the matter is a bunch are getting sold, so it's 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 not just an academic question. Um, selling a business is a big deal, and there's 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 two fundamental issues. One is financially, and that's that's pretty easy to kind of sort through and figure out. The other is the family side, which is not seldom talked about as well. And until you experience it, you probably don't fully appreciate the impact. But a lot of our family business friends, the business, you know, is, is who they are. It's where they get to hang out. If you're a senior person like like you know, I am, I guess, these days, it gives you a place to go to the office and still feel like you're, you know, engaged and part of part of the, the business. If you're younger, it gives you your career. So it gets you connected to the family. You see each other regularly. So when you sell the family business, it's a big deal from an emotional sense of worth, sense of self perspective. So that's something that I like to, and we talk about in the book, you know, the, the impact it has on the family. Financially, you know, having been through it both with our family business, one of them, we kept, we still have one of Gen 5 one right now, but, and having purchased several in the public company when we were doing an industry consolidation, um, it sounds great if you get a seven multiple or whatever, or EBITDA, but then when you pay the taxes, you have perhaps two thirds of the capital up, your net worth has just gone down because you've had to pay taxes on the, on the gain. Then you reinvest in this lovely stock and bond market. Um, you know, 
your, the cash flow is significantly less. So when you sell your family business, you have less capital, less cash flow, although you're diversified. And we can talk later on about, I think you can accomplish that diversification issue, which is a valid issue, and liquidity issue, which is a valid issue, in a much more savvy way than selling your business. So the options are though, either grow it and, and make it work for the next generation or grow it and sell it. Uh, there's a third option, which I don't particularly you know, endorse, although it, it's fine, is, is the lifestyle business, right? You, you're making a nice cash flow, I'm not gonna grow it. Works well for my family, it might work for my one kid, maybe not. Um, it's not gonna be very attractive from a sales position and you're probably not gonna have top not management working there because it's a static you know, kind of industry where you're not, or business where you're not making, you know, growing it and making a difference. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. We just, as a matter of fact, we were just talking before we started this is I just left a meeting where the family after, you know, 65 years just sold the business and, uh, you know, in the third generation and the level of emotions are, it's a rainbow. It's a plethora of different people feeling different things. There's relief for some because, you know, there was somebody in the second generation in his 80s that still felt that he had to run everything. Um, they, you know, they had not done the job to really put the power behind, you know, the, the G3 members. There's G3 members that are sitting there saying, I don't own as much of the business as I thought I did, <laughs> that I really, that I, did, that I understood that I did. And I'm not quite sure in my fifties if I'm as marketable as I might've been um, in the rest yeah. of the world as I was at the family business. So it's a, it's a very emotional piece. And then the other part, like you said, is, you know, if I haven't done my personal wealth planning, my personal financial planning, I don't know if I can live off of less than what I was, you know, bringing in. And oftentimes we've told people, you can't afford to sell the business at this point. Um, you better, you better do, think about doing something differently. That's right up the, right up the alley of the, the things that we talk about. I want, I want to hear more about, you know, um, some of those pieces that, you know, that you just talked about, but I also want to, one of the things that we talked about earlier was the family wealth evaporation trap that you talked about back in London that I think it's still, you know, valuable and means, you know, a lot today, but let, let's, let's pop into some of the, the roadmap for success and just hitting on the 10 different areas um, you know, within the paper that you wrote, the, the article that you wrote, the, the first one, it really makes an awful lot of sense. And I think this is, you know, exactly what I'm feeling when, with the family that I'm serving right now, where G2 and G3 are coming at things from a different mentality. And I think that's what you, you're talking about. Maybe you dive into that a little bit, the, the alignment of the ownership groups. Okay. Well, that, I think, let me make one caveat in the prior comment, selling the business. There are times when you get a ridiculous offer and they're out there. I mean, I'm hearing multiples of times, even pre-COVID, uh, 10 to 12 times EBITDA. In my opinion, that's a foolish price to pay for an, an operating company. So there are times when there are just foolish offers that may be too good to turn down. So there, you know, there, there are times to sell a business. The other time would be, is your outlet doesn't look good. It's an industry that's consolidating, that there's not growth prospects, and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm not a, you know, it's not a black and white answer, but there are some conditions where selling may make sense, but most of the time it doesn't. Most of the time, the reasons you sell, you can address those issues and needs in a non-sales mode and accomplish them. So back to your question now about, you know, I think probably the most, important if not you know one of the most important for sure is to be getting your ownership group aligned and particularly when there's a transition between one generation to the next you hear you know the fathers and the mothers are going to have their goals for the next generation what we did in our family is we had four principles of the prior generation my father being one of them my aunts and uncles the others um, we got my eight cousins together, which were all the heirs from those four people. One had no, no heirs. And we sat down and said, okay, it, you know, it's great our forefathers or parents want to continue on with the business, but it really comes down to what do we want to do? I mean, it's, it's, in, it's, gonna be, it's in our hands, it's gonna be in our hands. What do we want to do? Do we want to keep the business? How many of you want to 
think we should sell it? How many want to keep it going for another generation? So we started at a very root level of do we want to keep it or not? And we felt it was important that our group came together in terms of are we going to keep it or not? Who wants to be an owner? Who wants to be cash out? How are we going to govern? What are our goals? And the goal part is really important, you know, like distributions. Our family was a conservative family. So we really didn't do distributions other than for taxes. So, you know, it's like, we want to continue on with our, you know, that tradition and really grow the business and keep the capital in the business or do we, are somebody looking for a payday? And so we walked through and sorted through those kinds of issues. We ended up buying out three of the eight and five of us remain in the business. Okay. Those are the ones that were going to be active in the business. And then we decided we wanted to all be equal partners of 20% each. So we went through all those kinds of discussions. And then, then, we, then the next level, which was kind of part of this and was important to me, was how are we going to run this place? You know, what, what authority would I have as CEO? What authority does the board have? What authority does the owners have? We spent a fair amount of time working through what I call the shareholder operating agreement or limited partnership agreements. So we know what the ground rules were and we worked out if somebody needed to be terminated, how that would work if somebody wanted to cash out and those kinds of things. And so that's, there's a checklist in, in the appendix of my book that has like 15 pages of issues to think about in shared operating agreements. I think, um, it's, you know, it's helpful for people. You may not want to have answers for all of what it gives you a good checklist to think about. Do you have a decision, uh, you know, to, to make on some of these things today before a problem comes up tomorrow? Sure. And, and just for our listeners, you referenced your book. Um, you know, it's uh, available on Amazon. Um, I believe it was a, an Amazon bestseller, your family or your business, your family, your legacy um, by George. And it's, uh, you know, building a multi-generational family business that lasts. Um, it, I, have, I have to be perfectly honest. I have not, put, I have not gotten it yet, but it's on my list to, uh, to grab and uh and to get through that um i just i, I know that it's going to be packed full of you know great information the fact that you put things in there like the checklist that's super helpful so thank you for that it's a it's a quick read it's a couple hour read um it's, it's really kind of a guidebook and so you can doesn't have to go each chapter one after the other if you're looking for specific issues it, it's you can it's bounce not, around not fluffy i'm an engineering undergrad not a not a journalism major. So it's, uh, it's got some stories and case studies, but it's pretty, pretty content specific in terms of suggestions and things to think about. Perfect. So this is a good segue because you just went and we're talking about the fact that, you know, as you're talking about alignment and making sure that, you know, your family, um, and, that, and that is kind of, you know, special is the fact that you've been through this both on the family side and on the corporate side, where you've seen, you know, how these transitions are supposed to go. You've talked about the control issues, you know, and the, and the control issues happen even in a, in a corporate company because you have to figure out who's going to be the leader, who is going to be making the decisions, um, and you know, who who may be the 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 leadership part of that leadership team, and how do we how do we get those people, you know, working together inside of a family business. You know, sometimes that gets even more difficult. And, you know, you talked about the fact that, you know, you had lots of discussions around that. That's, you know, leads us right into developing that strong family governance piece and how do we make decisions together, correct? Yeah, we, 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 we raised a lot of issues. And, and when there's five family members that are cousins, you know, what rights do you have as an owner or cousin versus your position? And a lot of these things you can work through by going through the shareholder operators, going through these different issues and reaching concurrence. And, and that, that helps deal with the control issue because you've kind of agreed to how you're going to operate on a lot of these sensitive issues. So we had decisions on tax distributions, on other distributions, on capital investments, how much authority would I have as CEO versus the board, debt, and all those kinds of things. So that really helped take alleviate a lot of potential issues down the road the um governance was also dealt with at that time and we you know i insisted and they all agreed we'd have three outside directors so it just wasn't family members because you know it's, it's hard to do it when it's just your family and 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 so on and so 
we each family member got to each family branch. There were three because one of them didn't have any heirs. Got to pick, select a director that all of us had to agree to. So okay. we kind of the combination of people got to kind of pick their someone they were really comfortable with, but we all three one of the family branches had to agree, all five of us had to agree that they'd be on the board. So that brought a whole level of professionalism, um, good manners at the boardroom, you know, all the kinds of things that um, you need to have. And that was instant, just so significant, you know, and you probably would agree, Mike, that just the fact we'd had quarterly board meetings, just the fact that we had a board meeting and I and our team had to prepare for the board meeting, here's what we said we're gonna do, here's our strategy, here's our business plan, here's our progress. Even if we never had a board meeting, you know, a large percentage of the value was just forcing yourself to step away from the day-to-day -day operations and be ready for a board meeting. And of course, you had the board meeting, it was very valuable. And most of the discussions would come from the outside advisors and the directors, actually they're fiduciary directors, because we all saw each other all the time. So we all kind of pretty much knew how we all thought. So right. it was a good chance to get that outside perspective which um, which is really helpful. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that we would both agree upon is having that outside board of a, a directors or an advisory board, if it's informal, really makes a, a giant difference. And the way that you selected them was really smart. There's three of you, um, you know, or, and so when you each got to select one, now you've got a board of six people, um, but yet everybody had to approve them that was, that, that's a really nice way to do that. So they we actually had five, we had five owners on the board. My father. Yeah. And then the three outsiders. So we had a nine person board and I, my cousins insisted I report to the board, not my father. So that kind of, you know, was also part of the plan. Um, nice. and, that, and that was helpful, you know, it was. It was yeah. Wait, what, going through the years that, you know, that you ran that, um, what were you, what would you say were some of the most significant areas that the board, you know, and the outside board members in particular really had a, a big impact on? Well, for one, we had, you know, there's always an issue with reward, reward systems, right? Rewards for, for employment versus rewards for ownership. A lot of the clients I get involved with, you know, there's at that next generation, they're trying to figure out how to compensate people. And, and so, having an outside board to oversee my compensation, which was actually formula, formula driven based upon return on equity targets and, and so on. But having that oversight was very helpful. Um, encouragement, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting when you're, you know, when, when I came into the business and I was already, fortunately, I felt self-confident and successful because I became a partner at Deloitte. So that kind of made me feel like I had something going for me. But, you know, when you go back to the family business, it's like, are you playing to win or are you playing not to lose? And I don't want to be the guy that took the third generation down the tubes under my right. leadership. So right. the board was very helpful in kind of encouraging growth. We grew at sixfold over eight times. We did some eight years. We did, you know, some acquisitions and some, some organic growth. So we took some risk, but, um, you know, with taking risk and being subject to your family's criticism or the prior generation's criticism is something that you got to work through. And so the board was very helpful in having us, all of us agree, we're going to make this risk. And we all made some mistakes that didn't work out and everybody was fine with it. You know, they were, they were it was so, that was really very, very helpful. And then um, the fact that we had to prepare for the meetings and think strategically about the business was also really helpful from the board because they would ask those kinds of questions. So it was, and it was, it was helpful in a lot of different ways. And, I, and, and also private conversations. I, I would talk to my, one of the directors on the side, you know, what do you think about this? What do I do about that? And you know, so you get kind of free advice as well. From, you know, or they were paid, but you know. It was. Right. Do you find that oftentimes, especially in that, that switch from generation two to generation three, I think that's typically the, the toughest transition. Um, they're all, you know, they, they can all be tough, but it's that cousin generation where, you know, we didn't all grow up in the same household. We didn't grow up with the same values. And so, you know, and now we're marrying, you know, we've got spouses coming in from other families and it just complicates things more. Um, do you get a lot of pushback on the idea of, you know, formulating or formula, bleh, forming an advisory board at that level? I mean, for the third generation? Getting pushed yeah. back. Um, 
Not, not so much the third generation. The second generation is tough because you know, they, they think their board meetings when they shave in the morning and they ask themselves, you know, what they want to do. Third generation is usually more receptive to, uh, to a board. There's, there's always a little bit of nervousness like they're losing control. Um, my recommendation typically is, is, the, is and it's, it's evolutionary, but appoint advisory board members initially. But whether they're advisory or fiduciary directors where they have the legal right to vote and so on, you treat them the same. And I, I tell the family members, they're there to help you. They're not there to like fire you or, you know, it's, it's and if you don't like what they say, you, you can remove them in about 45 minutes and, you know, replace them. So you're not giving up any real control, but you're getting some really important help. So, right. you know, I, I, I that, that part I feel goes pretty well. Um, I, I, I have a family right now that I'm, we're right in that transition from G2 to G3. And the moment we talk advisory board, the G2 members are all like, oh, just cringe just at the thought of it. Yeah. And the, the power behind it um, is just, you know, insurmountable. It's just so helpful to have those things and have an outside perspective on what you're thinking, especially if you bring in high powered people that, you know, really can bring value to what you're doing and you're getting that value relatively inexpensive. It's some of the best money that, you know, most family businesses will put out there, I would say. Yeah, you know, as I mentioned, I've served on a bunch of boards and, and I, you know, most of the time they've been very, you know, very, very helpful. There's a few times and I actually have five case studies, I call it toxic directors, where one director can really undermine the board's effectiveness. That's, that's, um, I have some case studies of that. So there, you have to manage your board too. It's just, you know, it's more than just, just forming it, you know, there, there can be times when there's conflicts or hidden agendas or so on that, or, you know, and so on. So the boards need to be managed and the directors need to be evaluated. And there's, there's, a, there's a lot of nuances to forming a board that I think are worthy I think of. A, I think we could do a whole show on just talking about family advisory boards. That's a great yeah. topic. Yeah. So and the other side of governance, of course, is the family governance, right, Michael? So family yeah. council, family constitutions, kind of parallel types of concepts that are dealing with managing the family part of the business where the board manages the business, you know. So what are some of the, so talk about those for just a second. What do you feel are some of the, you know, the important pieces there and why is it so important to do that? You know, it all gets down to managing expectation. First of all, coming up with how you want to operate. You know, what's how's our family going to work together? And then managing the expectations by agreeing to those things so people can understand the, the, you know, the deal and have input into it. The, the one thing that I think um, it's worth noting is that failure is not if someone says, you know, I want, I need distributions, I need cash flow from this business. And the other 80% or 90% say, well, we wanna lay it all in the business and grow it. Then there's probably an exit strategy for the person that needs cash flow. I mean, you're not gonna be able to make everybody happy, but the goal is, is to align individuals' needs the best you can, and whoever remains in the business, that group is aligned, so they're all in the, pulled in the same way. And so, um, I had a client that 90, 95% of his net worth was in the family real estate business, and they were very conservative, and they weren't doing distributions. And this guy needed distributions. Right. So you look at is it financial advisors? You are. You go to say you got 95% of your net worth in an illiquid, concentrated investment that's not giving you distributions, and you need money. That's probably not a good financial plan for you. So, you know, the problem was is they didn't have a plan on how he could get out. So then it's like negotiating and, you know, that creates a whole lot of problems, you, you know, because you have a bunch of, bunch of, you know, people on one side and one person on the other side. How do you think that negotiation is going to go? Particularly if they don't, they're not fond of that guy. And that's kind of, so that's why you want to have this stuff worked out in advance. Interesting. So that's, so the family council, and the family constitution kind of acts, you know, as the, the family side of that, you know, your buy-sell agreement or the operating agreement, you know, for the people in the business. But if you're an owner outside of the business and not part of the business, then it helps to have those decisions and, you know, helps you to determine those decisions and think about things before they happen. And I guess you're that's- like, my, Go ahead. My son just graduated from college. Can he become, can he join the family business? You know, is the CEO going to make that decision or is the family going to have some policies in terms of, well, if you want to join the family business, one, we need to have a position that needs to be filled. Two, you need to be the one most, you know, confident to do it. 
And three, you need five years of outside experience before you join a family business or whatever the rules are, you know, that's, that's kind of, um, that's part of the stuff that you deal with family, cons you know, constitutions. The other thing the family council can do is work on the culture of the organization. That kind of flows into family dynamics, but what's our culture, you know, how are we going to deal with conflict, you know, resolution, what, you know, what does it mean to be part of our family? Are we going to have annual retreats where we can develop and, and you know our culture and our you know our relationships amongst the family members so there's a whole bunch of family management issues that are really important in a family business if you want to have it maintained for multiple generations because you know as you stated each generation you're further and further apart both geographically you know different parents different interests different ownership levels you're not working in the business so those kinds of things can be dealt with Perfect. In your article, you talk about focus on business strategy. And, I, and you said something earlier that I think kind of flows together with those two pieces. And tell me if, you know, if I'm on the right track here in what you're thinking. You had said, are you playing to win or are you playing not to lose? And I use that same conversation. I use, a, you remember the, you may, may or may not remember him, but he was a, an Olympic snowboarder, Sean White. And uh, Sean White, you know, had won three or four different Olympics in a row, you know, and went into um, one of the Olympics and you could just tell he just played not to lose and a young snowboarder. And I re just, I remember this his nickname was iPod. Um, I don't remember, I don't remember the details, but he came in with these new tricks and he just was going at it to win and, and went after it. And, you know, Sean White, who again, famous, you know, snowboarder, came back to the next Olympics and realized the difference between, you know, because he had a, you know, the, he did not medal or you know, did not get the gold at, at that um, at that time and came back to the next Olympics and won. And so, you know, it goes back to that's the, that same kind of scenario of you need that business strategy that says, are you going to play to win? Or are you going to play not to lose? And, and what is the difference between those things? And you talk about some tools and some things that families should be doing on a regular basis as they're developing their strategy. Do you want to share some of those? Sure. What, what we did is we had annual retreats where we did a strategic plan. And, and use this old-fashioned SWOT analysis, which I'm sure you probably learned about as long ago as I did. It's, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. It still works. And you kind of cut it up by whatever sector you want, by your product line, by your industry, you know, by whatever market competitive place that you're in, and you start figuring out where, where are you gonna go? And it's so easy to just kind of be consumed with operating efficiencies and the day-to-day -day management that you don't take the time to step back and, and look at your business in a strategic position, perspective, I mean. And secondly, what, what I find, um, disappointing is when I see the next generation come in and just adopt the prior generation strategy. I mean, at that point, I mean, you need to be doing this. We did it every, every year, but perhaps every two or three years at a minimum, you ought to be sitting down and look at where you are in the industry because things are changing really fast as we all know. Short life cycles, new technology, new value propositions, you need to be in the game. And so strategic planning is a very critical part of that. And that will drive, really your business plan, your financial needs, your organizational needs, that kind of starts there. And that's, that really helped us um, kind of sort through along with some opportunistic things that happened along the way that, you know, we took advantage of. But, but you wouldn't, but it, without a strategy, you wouldn't have taken advantage of those things when they came up. You know, if you, you weren't thinking about growing, if you weren't thinking about winning, it, it would have been different. I always, you know, I like to say you're either green and growing or dead and dying. And, you know, if the business is dying, I think that probably plays into the, your, the family wealth evaporation trap. Is that? Well, that, that's, yeah, that's, that's a separate topic. I love to talk about It's probably my favorite topic. Um, just because I think it's really, it's really unique. Um, it was an aha moment for me when I thought about it. And I think it's an aha moment when we share it with family businesses, the family wealth evaporation trap, is let me start with when I go into a lot of family businesses like ours was and, and I didn't do what I you know um, not recommend because I wasn't aware of it at the time but um, the family you know the family say we're a conservative family we you know we run it we live we live you know modestly we're saving for the future 
Um, I have no debt. Grandpa didn't like debt, you know, so we have no debt on our books. Then we have a pile of cash. And I'll say, oh, okay. I said, well, I, that's conservative. And I'm a conservative guy as well. But I, you know, I've got a question for you. Your receivables inventory, you got about $25 million in receivables and inventory. Could you get working capital line of credit for that? Well, yeah, we could. Well, what percent interest rate? Well, you know, maybe three and a half, four percent. Say, okay, so really what you're doing by accident is you're taking your family's precious equity capital and investing in a three to four percent returning asset. If I brought you a deal that so I can get you three or four percent, you want to give me 10, 15 million dollars, you throw me out of your office. So why not have some modest level of working capital? Maybe you advance it at 75% of receivables and 50% inventories. It's still very conservative, easy to do. And that frees up a tremendous amount of capital. And then that pile of cash you have in, in your checking account or money market fund, what's that? Well, that's earning you know, a percent. Well, if you could earn, say, 6% over the next generation, say 25 years, that money was, if you plot that out and you show them, and I have examples in the book, but I mean, it's like it goes from, you know, it's 10 million now, it goes maybe to 20 million in 25 years the way it is now, or it goes to like 100 million. Well, you know, I don't have the numbers memorized, but it's something huge where you, you have a huge, more, much more capital. So, in essence, these conservative, you know, financial policies that you have, returning to good stewards, is working just the opposite. You're evaporating a lot of your family's wealth. So there are better ways to do that. And you can do that by over time doing some distributions to, to outside to then reinvest into other areas or provide liquidity to the family if they need it, have a diversified portfolio. And in seven years or so, all of a sudden, your personal net worth is not 80% family business, 20% diversified assets. It's maybe two thirds family business and a third, you know. So there's ways to really deal with that. And that's that's something I learned, you know, through my capital markets work in the public company and private equity investing. But I thought this is, and that's, you know, that's kind of how I got to where I put it in the book is, is, in the, in, is that learning things from outside the family business world that can apply. Does it make sense? Absolutely. And, and that's one of the things that I love about your writing is a lot of times when we're dealing with family business consultants, they, they get the governance, they get the board, you know, they get the family constitution, um, but they don't understand a lot of the things that you've written about in this article where you're talking about investing in the best organization, managing the metrics and committing to a culture of growth. And that comes from your background as a business consultant that, you know, you really start to take those things and what you're, what, you know, and tell me if I'm, you know, on the right, if I'm, if we agree here, but it's the, it's professionalizing family business and if you don't professionalize it what happens well that, that's true i mean it, it, we really we, we kind of redid everything when we got involved and in how we think how we look at the world our systems and reporting one interesting example of the metrics which there are a couple of things that, that a lot of this is empowering people and we had we, had, we were in a hard industry you know in terms of it was, it was metals recycling we sold the steel mills and foundries so it's you know, it's, it's a dirty, tough industry in terms of, of hard working conditions. Sure. And, you know, and I, I would look at the, our workers who were dirty and out in the cold, as in the Midwest, the snow, and they're working outside and sometimes inside, but it was a rough job. And, you know, they, they were wonderful people, but, you know, they're kind of just doing their job. And, and I thought, that's got to be really boring. Then at four o'clock, you know, after they leave and they're joining the softball league in the summer, they're all full of energy and fired up and excited. And I'm like, why, why, why is the workplace not more enjoyable? So we try to do things to, to make things better for them and, and empower them. And one thing, we had a plant, we had several plants that were doing the same thing. And one, one, one well, a group of these plants were underperforming. So I had a big meeting with the management team at our yard with the plant manager and the vice president of operations, myself. And I said, well, where's the guy that runs the presses? You know, he's like, I'll run the presses. And I said, well, who knows more about this business than the guy that spends eight hours a day running these presses? Let's get him in here for this meeting. Find somebody else to run the press or shut it down. But, you know, let's get his input. So they went out and the president wants you to come in. The guy feels really empowered, sits down, and he tells us stuff that we never would have figured out. 
some really stupid things that were going on that were easy to fix. And we were able to, believe it or not, double, and then we, we asked them what, what the goals should be, what the metrics should be for the shift production. And we started giving him reports each shift and how his production met his goal, which empowered him. He felt really good. I'm sure he went out and told his wife, we killed it today, you know, and, it was, and the presses needed constant tweaking to keep it, you know, proper in terms of output. So he had a good system in place. We actually doubled the production in those plants with no capital expenditure, just by really, it came down to it, you know, metrics and getting the guy that was running it involved, you know, a little bit of management help, but, but I, I credit it to the, you know, the hourly worker. That was one thing. The other thing was we had truck drivers going to pick up scrap metals from industrial plants. And I went to a seminar by Young President's organization, YPO, which I belong to. This guy got up there and said, you know, you gotta treat your people right and make them feel good just give them business cards is a big deal. I thought that's how that sounds simple. So I went and I ordered a box of business cards for people in the office and for our truck drivers. I called them customer service reps because they really were our first line of, you know, contact. And so I get they get a box of 250 or 500 cards and, and you know what do they do with them? Like they give them to their mom and their cousins and you know maybe a few for business. Six months later, one of these long-term family dri driver, part of our family business driver, not in the family passed away. So I'm going to the funeral and I'm walking in and they have the big board with all the pictures around it, you know, and right in the middle of this board is this business card stuck in there. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps again because every time I tell this story, I get goosebumps and I'm like, oh my God. And so I go up to the wife, express my condolences and she says, George, I just can't tell you how much it meant when he got that business card. I'm like, you know, how stupid am I? I mean, that was like such a simple thing. You know, why didn't I think of it? But we put it in. But right. things like that, between metrics and empowering people, so they get to, my goal was really to have each person kind of run their piece of the business as if it was theirs. And that really helped. And that's a combination of leadership and metrics. That's, uh, that's perfect. I, I'm doing a talk for Tech Rochester um, next week. And it's called, uh, what's your return on trust? And that's exactly what you're, you know, what we talk about is, you know, you've got to trust your people. What are the, you know, everybody, each person, what are they the CEO of? You might be the CEO of keeping the floor, you know, the shop floor clean, but I want you to be the CEO of that. I want to trust you. And here's your business card that says, you know, we empower you to bring that stuff together. And, you know, I, I love that, you know, that you went back to, the people in the business that it, they know it better than anybody. I always tell business owners, you know, one of the things that you might want to be doing is taking that SWOT analysis and asking the people on the front lines to be doing that with, you know, without input, teach them how to do it, teach them what it means, but then look what comes back because you may learn more from that than all of your leadership team sitting in a room for three days. Yeah. There, there's a whole lot. There's a whole lot of this. We, we were trained in our MBA programs you know, that people and machines and systems, they're all like interchangeable, you know, you just optimize. And that, that's just the wrong approach. And there's a, whole, there's a whole lot of writings on leadership. And we, I had a plant in Cleveland, Ohio, that we didn't have work for it. It was two weeks before Christmas. And they were our most cost efficient plant. And we had a product that they would deteriorate over time, not weeks, but months, because it's not outside. And so, I wasn't, I went up to the plant personally and talked to the whole employee group and said, look, we don't have a business right now, orders for you guys, but I'm not gonna lay you off two weeks before Christmas. I said, we want you to have a good Christmas, just really make extra good quality product. We're gonna put it on the ground and we'll sell it, you know, in January, hopefully. And, you know, I did that just, to, you know, to re-recognize what they've done and to treat them with as much respect as we could. And I think that had to pay off, you know, in terms of goodwill and, and you know, satisfaction of our team. 100%. And you know, I, I bring this up often. I, you know, the Edelman trust barometer, um, anybody can go and look these things up, but they, every two or three years, they focus in on family owned businesses. And every single time I just looked at the, the most recent one was 2019. Um, the family owned business has, you know, a bump in close to 20% more inherent trust from their um, employees and their customers just because they're a family owned business. And, and I tell people all the time, 
make sure you're living up to that to that extra bump that you get as being a family-owned business. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's it's great. And you can really take care of a lot of, you have a great responsibility for a lot of families. I mean, we have, you know, father-son workers, you know, that in one, one place spent 50 years, he would spend his entire life working for us. Awesome. Love it. Um, going through the article, you know, some of the other things, and we've hit on some of these things, we've kind of bounced around a little bit, but, you know, you talk about an investor perspective and managing liquidity. Does that kind of fit into, you know, the parts of the, you know, the family evaporation trap or, you know, do you have some other thoughts that, you know, that you'd share with us about that? Sure. I mean, there's a, certainly a fit with the family wealth evaporation trap, but probably the biggest mistake that I made, there's two, two mistakes I would say I would, that I made. Um, I mean, there's probably a lot more, but two that I really, really, um, you know, wish I would have done differently. One was we, got, we had all of our goals really aligned when we started off, when I joined the company, but we never really went back and revisited. And over time, every, not everybody, but most people's needs will change, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, whether it's, but, but it, they did. And so all of a sudden our kind of no distribution policy for, for ownership rewards got old. <laughs> I mean, they kept hearing about what great return on the equities that the company was doing. I would probably present these reports to our board showing, you know, nice double digit returns on equity and value of the company going up. And finally, one of my cousins came up and said, you know, you keep showing how much more the company's worth, but I'm not seeing any of it. I'm still eating right. the same hot dog for lunch every day, you know? And, 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 he, and I said, it's kind of like we have this diamond in the family and it's valuable and it keeps going up in value. And then we die and we give it to our kids. They pay some estate taxes and they have the diamond. And so I thought, you know, that's, that's really a fair criticism. And, and, and so the lack of liquidity, the lack of returns to the investors became an issue. And so you have to realize that the returns to the investors are based upon cash received, not value of the stock. It's not realized. It's like a paper gain. On, if, if your Amazon stock goes up 10%, if you don't see that, it, it, it's, it's just a paper game that could go away. And so that was, that was the second issue is we didn't have a good policy or we didn't change our policy to provide liquidity and distributions to the family members so they could enjoy some of those rewards or diversify their own investments, you know, whatever reason they needed. And that, that, was, that was, you know, that's something I think we see a lot of families doing. So you, you need to balance rewards to the investors and be certain that you're meeting their needs. And if you look at them as your cousins that were lucky to get the stock, that's gonna get you in trouble. Nope, that makes an awful lot of sense. And then the, the last part of the article that you go into is talking about developing a living succession plan. Everybody talks about a transition plan or a succession plan. What is the, what is the living succession plan? Well, I, I think it's certain parts that are, are, are need to be updated regularly. And, and you know, some of the, the, the industry state and retirement planning in there. I mean, the, the irony is, right, if, if I own, if, if a public company, if the owners die, there's no cap, there's no tax. You know, I mean, it's, it's like the CEO of General Motors dies, they don't have to pay a tax to the government. But if our family business owner dies, all of a sudden we have a big estate tax that we have to pay. There's some ways you can defer it over time, but Nonetheless, there's a big tax, a big liquidity need. So just being able to understand, you know, those needs are, you know, are, are important. And so there's certain parts of a succession plan that, that you need to rethink as you go through them to update. And, you know, governance might change. You know, do we need different types of directors now? Um, what are we doing about developing the, our organization and the, and the family members? And, and those, there's nine steps in the succession plan, and there's some of them similar to what we talked about in terms of strategic planning and so on. But it, it's something that you just don't do one time and forget about. It sounds an awful lot like, you know, the more you communicate, the better off the family is, the better off the business is. Um, you know, it's people's situations change, right? And, and it's time to go back and Maybe it's a, an annual conversation or at least every other two years to, to sit down and say, where are you at right now? What's going on in your life? And being able to take, take a step back and understand that just because this is where you are in life, not everybody that's an owner is in the same spot that you're in. 
Yeah, in particular, I do I do some work in a fair amount of work in the state planning, and and too often the the dad or mom decides we're just going to divvy things up, you know, equally among all kids, and and that 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 can be fine, but but maybe maybe some kids don't want the risk; they want to they want to you know more of an assured asset in their portfolio. Other guys like we were, we wanted to go for it, and that's part of why we sold we bought out the three parties because they weren't going to be in the business and we didn't want to be responsible for destroying their inheritance. So they got paid their inheritance from their parents the day we took over and, and they could do what, you know, they could diversify and do their own investing. And, and, and so, you know, I, it's, it's just trying to deal with those kinds of issues. Um, it's good. I mean, it's, that's that's a really solid foundation to to walk through if you're hitting on all of those buttons, um, and like I said, you know the fact that it's a you know several page article versus you know it's not the compendium, it's not your book. Everything everything that's inside of this article is expanded upon, expanded upon inside your book, I would imagine, and yeah. you have yeah. a checklist. You have you know just many more tools to work with. But this is such a great place to start. Um, and again, this is available out on the internet. It's Therawatt Magazine. Um, and it's, you know, uh, it's on my website too. All and it's articles. on your website. While we're, let's take a second before we wrap up, tell it, remind everybody your website, how do they get, a, get in you know, touch with you if they wanted to? Okay. Well, the website has, there's probably, there's over 20 articles published there as well as the book. So you can get all that information at no cost. I mean, you have to buy the book, but other than that, um, it's all available to you. Uh, the website is real simple. It's www.georgeisaac, all run together, .com. And Isaac is I-S-A-A-C. And you can contact me through that as well. Um, I'd be more than glad to, um, you know, be a sounding board if you want to bounce some ideas off of me. I, this this whole uh, consulting gig is just me. It's just, I do it for really to have purpose and to help others. And it's, I'm not trying to build any big practice here, but uh, take one or two clients at a time and try to help make a difference. Nice. So in your years of consulting, if you had to think about that one family that, you know, that really needed you, um, do you have a story that just sticks out in terms of you went in, were able to really turn things around because they just, they just didn't, they, they just didn't get it before you came in there and you really helped them to put some pieces together. What would, what would be like the two or three things that, you know, you focused on with that family? Well, the one I mentioned with the, um, with the 95% ownership in the real estate company, I helped them take their family consults to a whole different level. Um, and, and, and I think that made a big difference in terms of the dynamics of the family. Um, secondly, I put on a, a financial boot camp for generations three, four, and five. And basically, it taught the, a lot of people don't understand financials, you know, financials and what you should get out of them. So I, I was able to make finance easy, which is kind of a, and it's, I have a chapter that I wrote, you know, how to, what's the purpose of an income statement, a balance sheet, what do you look for, what questions should you answer, should you get answered, and here's some sample charts and graphs. So. It's kind of fun to take something that can be very complex, make it understandable, because there's a lot of family members that don't have, weren't trained in finance and accounting. So I did that with both those families. I mean, there's a, there's a variety of, of, you know, I did some work with Family Wealth Evaporation Trap where I convinced an extremely conservative, old-fashioned board of, of the prior generation to remove a large amount of cash sitting in their, in their, on their books into a diversified portfolio. And that took some real, you know, I guess salesmanship or skill in convincing them of you're not increasing the risk of your family's wealth by doing this. And, and one of my examples was, if we took $30 million of cash out of your business right now and put them in a separate LLC and invest in US treasury bonds, have I really increased the risk of your, of your family? And the answer is no. And in fact, I probably decrease your risk because I now have 30 million in a separate LLC that right. can be asset protected if done right. And so, you know, there's there's those kinds of things that are, but it's just, just approaching things from a different paradigm 
than what most people in family businesses have. And the only reason that I'm able to do that is because I've worked a lot outside of the family business world as well. And that, that's helped me um, bring some of these different ideas. Love it. Love it. And, and you're speaking my language. And that's why, you know, as a financial advisor, a wealth manager, um, we got involved with family businesses and understanding, you know, the family dynamics. And then, you know, we've spent the last three years really studying and getting an, a good understanding of growth strategies and, you know, managing cash and the, the financials and being able to help that because we saw exactly what you're saying is that especially, you know, they got into business because they wanted to deal with widgets and they really understood widgets and they got, you know, that one piece done and they got really excited about building whatever the widgets were and distributing them and selling them. But man, when it came to looking at the financials, that was not any fun for them. And, and oftentimes, you know, that management of the liquidity is, you know, comes back to um, either they can grow themselves you know, out of business because you're growing too fast. You're not managing the liquidity on that side or the opposite, you know, that you were talking about is, you know, you're building up so much liquidity inside of there that, you know, you're not getting a good return on your investment any longer. So it's probably worth if I can take a minute to talk sure. about liquidity because I, I, what's going on right now with the world uh, is terrible. And uh, there's an article on my website and it's in family business magazine as well on managing liquidity. Um, and it's, it's, if you're having trouble with liquidity, there's some really specific types of analyses that you need to do to understand where your cash is flowing. And there's the obvious ones in terms of receivables, you know, days collection and days payable and your payables. But the other one that's, that's you know, if you're really getting in trouble is to look at your sales cycle. And for most of us, we end up, you know, having to pay our payroll, right? And we have to buy our raw materials even before the payroll they comes in. Then we make something with it, we pay our payroll, we pay our rent, our overhead. Then eventually we, we ship it. Now the money's already gone out the door for all those prior things. We ship it and then probably, you know, somewhere between 30 and 60 days, we get paid. Well, that is consuming your cash. So to the extent you understand that cycle and are able to try to improve upon it, that can really help you. It might be that you may have to not take some business or maybe you can get some financing, working capital financing, but if you can't, that you're gonna run out, of, you're gonna get in trouble when you run out of cash, not run out of profits. And so at certain times, we need to kind of change your focus from profit management to cash management during these very difficult times. It's a different metric. It's quite often a lot of people aren't used to looking at, at that unless they're highly leveraged. And I just right. you know, I think it's important too. We always tell people the, 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 the worst word you can utter is, well, that's the way we've always done it. And, yeah. and, and you really need to dig into those, you call it the, the, the sales cycle, and we call it the cash conversion cycle. I think we're the same exact thing. Yeah. And, and it's so important. You know, I use the story of Dell Computers to illustrate that for people. Dell Computers was running out of cash on a regular basis because they were sitting at a, like a 63-day cash conversion cycle because they were making the computers and then, and then selling them. And when they flipped that, I think it was the CFO, Tom Meredith went in, this is back in the nineties, but it's still such a great story. He flipped that around and started getting people to pay for the computers in advance. So they went from 63 days to a negative 21 days. And so they had much more cash to work with. And it, just a great example of that. There's another small company that did that. It's, it's called Amazon. <laughs> right. Yeah. They paid their vendors in 60 days and they kept their cash that they had shipped. Yep. So, I mean, yeah, that's, it's, it's, you know, it's, it, that's fun of their growth, but, but for our, for our family businesses at this, this time, you really got to be certain you've got a good handle on your cash and you're forecasting them out for probably 12 weeks on a, on a weekly basis and understand, understand the historical cycles of payments probably are going to get delayed from your customers. And you really just need to, constantly be focusing on that or you're going to get yourself potentially in trouble and that once you're in trouble it's pretty hard to, to get, get out, out of it. yeah banks aren't going to be there for you <laughs> if you're really it's been a pleasure i really enjoyed our time together today um we we've already told people where to where to find you go out and find george's book um out on amazon and just as a reminder it is your business your family your legacy 
um, by George Isaac. And uh, my name is Michael Columbus. This was the Family Biz Show. I want to thank everybody for joining us and listening in. Um, have a great day, everybody. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting-edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that, and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.